Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's important for me to say to those visiting with us this morning that we have, for quite some time now as a church, been engaged in a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians. And uh, all of those messages are on sermon audio. And I believe believe this week is our 36th week in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, so... I expect all of you to have listened to all 35 of those messages by next Sunday so that everyone is caught up. Uh, uh, They are there for for your uh, availability. Uh, But this morning, we're just going to be considering the first three verses of chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Let me read them before we jump into this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, and these are the words of God. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. With regard to knowledge, there are two ditches that Christians are prone to fall into. The first is the ditch of ignorance. This ditch teaches that knowledge is bad because it is in opposition with spirituality. This ditch says that you can't be knowledgeable and spiritual. I've met preachers even who have fallen into this ditch. They make statements like, well, we don't need any more men with seminary educations. (laughs) Uh, We just need a man filled with the Spirit. As if there's some sort of contradiction between those two things. The problem with such a statement is that it establishes a false dichotomy between knowledge and spirituality. As if education somehow limits the Spirit's working in your life or that the Spirit will lead you into stupidity, which I promise you He won't because He's the Spirit of truth. So the following, or the, the individual following that rhetoric has fallen into the ditch of ignorance. But the second ditch is that of intellectualism. This ditch teaches that knowledge is spirituality. That the goal of the Christian life is to accumulate as much knowledge as possible. And the more you know, the more spiritual you are. The great problem with this ditch, though, is that it forsakes the practical outworking of knowledge into our manner of life. Theological knowledge was not meant to be hung up on the wall and admired. It was meant to be lived out. This ditch of intellectualism fails to realize that knowledge is not the final destination, the ultimate goal of the Christian life. It is only a means to get there. The final destination of the Christian life is not a cold, apathetic, intellectual accumulation of knowledge. The final destination of the Christian life is a deep and fervent love for God and His people. And knowledge is a means, I would say it is the chief means to that great end, because after all, you cannot love a God that you know nothing about. But if your knowledge about God and about the Bible, and about Christian doctrine and theology, does not lead you to an intense love for God and His people, then there is something dreadfully wrong. There is a great disconnect in your Christian life. You are missing the Christian life by 18 inches, as one brother has said. That's the distance from your brain to your heart. You have fallen into the ditch of intellectualism. Well, here, in the first three verses of chapter 8... The Apostle Paul gives us the antithesis of these two ditches. What we find in verses 1 through 3 are the biblical view and relationship of love and knowledge. The solution to these two ditches, the solution to a zeal not according to knowledge, the solution when our devotion does not match our doctrine, solution to full heads and empty hearts, or empty hearts and full heads, as with so many things in the Christian life, is not abandoning one for the sake of the other. 
It's what the two ditches do. Either they abandon knowledge for some pseudo-spirituality, or they uh, abandon spirituality for the sake of cold, dry knowledge. The solution, as with so many things in the Christian life, is not going from one extreme to the other, but rather it is finding a biblical balance between the two. Now, the specific circumstances surrounding this topic of knowledge and love, that is, meat sacrificed to idols, that's what chapter 8 is about, and really, uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10 all kind of hinge on this one particular issue. This was a major issue in the Corinthian church. Uh, That might seem a bit odd to us in the 21st century. You might think, why would you spend three weeks preaching through a chapter on meat sacrificed to idols. Well, I, I admit that, yes, that is quite odd to us in the 21st century. But though this specific situation might not be as intimately applicable, the underlying principles certainly are. Because all of us have our meat sacrificed to idols. All of us have those issues within the Christian life, these practical issues that cause tension between believers that we need to know how the Lord would have us to sort through in accordance with His grace, in accordance with His character. And the way to navigate these issues is to maintain our peace and to glorify God by having our knowledge in proper relationship with our love. Having our knowledge in proper relationship with our love. There's four things about this text that I want you to see, beginning in verse 1, and a lot of these points come out of verse 1. There's a lot in verse 1. The first thing I want you to see is the case. The case. The case at hand. Uh, We must understand the situation that Paul is addressing in order to rightly apply the principles. Because you know that all things are possible through a verse taken out of context. Uh, And we do not want to take this passage out of its context. We will not understand the underlying principles unless we understand the context. So, I want you to see the case. Paul begins and he says, Now as touching things offered unto idols. The the beginning phrase, now as touching, very familiar to us as we've been going through 1 Corinthians. We see this over and over again. Chapter 7 especially, now concerning, now as touching, now referring to. When we see this phrase... We know that Paul is addressing something that was first brought up to him by the Corinthians. Paul had an ongoing correspondence with the Corinthian church through letters and through communication. And anytime you see, as you're reading in 1 Corinthians, now as touching or now concerning, you may know that Paul is about to address something that was not brand new information, but it was something that they brought up to him. Um, We see that in chapter 7 and now... He says it again in chapter 8 to signify that he's transitioning to a new set of questions and topics. Chapter 7 was a very lengthy chapter on the subject of marriage and intimacy and singleness and widowhood and things relating to that. We spent five weeks going through all of those now concernings, now concernings. Well, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace, we're now in chapter 8 and we have a new subject to begin. Chapter 8 begins a new section that runs through the first verse of chapter 11. The broader subject is that of Christian liberty. That's what these chapters are about. Christian liberty with a specific issue in view of meats sacrificed to idols. So he says, now concerning, or now touching, things offered unto idols. Well, I, I must stop and explain the historical context. Otherwise, this passage won't make any sense to us. What, what do we mean? Meats sacrificed to idols. Why would a church in the first century, a Christian church, be concerned about meats sacrificed to idols? Well, you must understand that the city of Corinth was so engrossed in paganism. False religion was all around the city of Corinth that the Christians in the Corinthian church were constantly exposed to unknowingly participating in something idolatrous. They lived in a polytheistic society which had a multitude of gods who represented a multitude of things. And it was common practice for pagans to sacrifice animals to the multiplicity of gods that they worshipped. For these sacrifices, they would bring these animals to the pagan temples, to the pagan priests, and the animal would be slaughtered and the animal would be offered on the altar. A portion of the meat was consumed on the altar in the fire. 
A second portion of the meat was given to the pagan priest. He would then consume some of that meat himself and for his family. And he would give the remainder of his portion to the meat market to be sold to the public. And then a third portion of the meat of the animal that was sacrificed would be kept by the offerer, the one making the sacrifice. He would keep a portion of the meat for him and his family. And this was very common in the first century. But what this meant for a Christian was that if they went to a meat market or if they were invited into the home of a pagan friend uh, to have say, have a meal with an unbelieving friend, a co-worker or someone they knew, there was a high possibility that they would be sold or served meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And this situation caused a great contention within the Corinthian church. And it caused a tension between two parties. The first party was made up of those who saw nothing wrong with eating the meats. Because as they reasoned, well, these idols are nothing. These, these gods are false. They are not real. Therefore, a non-entity, a non-existent idol, cannot contaminate the meat. I'm not sinning by eating this meat because I know in my mind that this idol is nothing. I'm not participating in their idolatry. I'm just eating the meat. That was one party. But then there was a second party and that was, compo- that was composed of those who believed that they would be committing sin if they partook of the meat because they believed that by partaking of the meat, knowing that it had been sacrificed to idols, they were in some sense participating in the idolatry. Now do you understand how this could cause serious contentions in the church? Serious contentions in the church. Many of the Corinthians had come out of paganism themselves and to partake of meat that was sacrificed in a false religion to which they once belonged was a violation of their consciences. They wanted nothing to do with that old pagan, satanic, demonic religion. This division, by the way, is where we get the distinctions of the stronger brother and the weaker brother. I'm sure you've all heard that terminology used before in church, uh, the stronger brother and the weaker brother. Paul uses the terminology explicitly in Romans 14. Romans 14, again, has the same principle, but a totally different situation. So let's, let's talk about this stronger brother and weaker brother. And I want to give you a few important clarifications because th- this is a distinction that is woefully abused in the church. The stronger brother is the one who has the liberty to partake in faith. So in this situation, the stronger brother was the, was the church member. And even though it says brother, I mean, it could re- obviously refer to a female. It was the church member, man or woman, who could partake of the meat in faith and in their heart they believed they were not sinning by so doing. The weaker brother is the one who cannot partake without violating his or her conscience. Stronger brother, weaker brother. Now I need to give you some important clarifications. Okay, first clarification. The stronger brother is not stronger because he is more godly, mature, knowledgeable, or spiritual. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about the stronger brother. Being stronger or weaker doesn't have as much to do with our spirituality as it does with our sensitivities in certain areas of our life. So therefore, the weaker brother is not weaker because he is less godly, mature, knowledgeable, or spiritual. The stronger brother is simply strong because he has the strength to partake without violating his conscience while the weaker brother does not. So that's the first distinction that I want you to understand. Second clarification, the designation of stronger and weaker brother is not unilateral. It does not apply equally to the same person across all issues. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that with some issues, you may be the stronger brother, but with other issues, you may be the weaker brother. I would actually care to venture that in this room today, all of us are the stronger brother in some issues and the weaker brother in some issues. I may be able to participate in things that you wouldn't feel comfortable doing. For you to do them would be to sin in your mind and in your conscience. But you may be able to do something that I would have to abstain from for the sake of my conscience. That's what the Bible teaches on liberty of conscience. Something that 
Baptists have fought for centuries to defend the liberty of conscience. That we do not have the right or the authority to lord over the consciences of God's people when God has not clearly said, Thou shalt do or thou shalt not do. My abstaining or my partaking doesn't mean that I'm more spiritual than you. It just means we have different sensitivities based primarily on our experiences. And many of these sensitivities have to do with uh, heavily with what the Lord saved us from. This is why the stronger, weaker brother distinction can be harder sometimes for Christians who are saved in an earlier age in life to grasp because they don't have as many sensitivities. But for men and women who are saved later in life, who, who really remember the, the vile, wretched things that the Lord delivered them from, they understand this distinction. For instance, I once knew a man who, who he cannot even listen to an electric guitar. He, he cannot, he, he used to play guitar, he still knows how to play guitar, he, he will not touch an electric guitar, he can't listen to an electric guitar because the Lord saved him from playing music in a death metal band. And he cannot, in his conscience, separate that instrument from that lifestyle that he once led. Now we know, you and I both know, that there's nothing inherently sinful about an electric guitar. And so he would admit that he is the weaker brother on that issue. Whereas I have no problem listening to an electric guitar. And I'm sure many of you don't either. And that doesn't mean he's less spiritual, by the way. That just means he's sensitive to what the Lord has saved him from. And the third distinction that I want you to understand is the stronger, weaker brother distinctions, the third clarification, the stronger, weaker brother distinction does not apply to things that are overtly sinful, blatantly against the word of God. That's an important clarification. Because some Christians will attempt to justify sin in their life by arguing that they are just the stronger brother on that issue. You can't do that. Just because your conscience is not violated doesn't mean you're the stronger brother. It may mean that your conscience is just not aligned with the word of God. A couple Wednesdays ago, we were talking about the, the nature of the human heart. and the, the nature of the human heart and the human conscience are intimately related. God does give you a conscience. And after regeneration, your conscience can be a helpful guide. But you must ensure that you are constantly conforming your conscience to the Word of God. You cannot say, well, just because I don't feel convicted, or just because this doesn't feel wrong... That doesn't mean that it necessarily isn't wrong and that you have liberty to partake. So, to our previous illustration, while there is nothing inherently sinful about an electric guitar, there's not. In fact, there's nothing inherently sinful about any musical instrument because musical instruments are immaterial. But there is something inherently sinful about music that gratifies the lusts of the flesh brings no glory to God, and contains a demonic and wicked message. There's something inherently sinful about music like that, and you cannot listen to it and then turn around and say, well, I'm just the stronger brother on this issue. We don't have the Christian liberty to do that. Christian liberty is not the liberty to sin. Christian liberty is not the liberty to do things that violate the Word of God. So I want you to keep these clarifications in mind as we work our way through chapter 8. And uh, after the message, if you need these clarifications, you want to write them down, you want to, to keep them in memory as we go through the rest of chapter 8 in this section on Christian liberty, they're extremely helpful to, to understand these distinctions. Uh, this is the case that Paul is addressing. It's a dispute between stronger brothers and weaker brothers over the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. That's the case. Secondly, I want you to see the conjecture. The conjecture. Again, in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, the Bible goes on and it says, We know that we all have knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge. Now, this phrase is very similar to the opening phrase in chapter 7. I want you to look with me at chapter 7 in verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, 
It is good for a man not to touch a woman. And you remember that we said, based upon the grammatical structure of the text, based upon the context of the passage, based upon the way that the Apostle Paul writes and teaches, that this is most probably not what Paul said, but it's something that Paul quoted the Corinthians saying. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul did not say that. The Corinthians said that. Paul quoted it and then began to respond to it. And I'm going to argue that he's doing the same thing again in chapter 8 when he says, we, all, we know that we all have knowledge. That's a quote from the Corinthians. Uh, the translators of several modern versions, such as the translators of the ESV, they actually made the decision to place that phrase, we all have knowledge, in quotation marks. Now, that's a risky thing to do because there, there's no quotation marks in the Greek, right? I guess you could say it's a risky thing to preach it, but here we are. There's no quotation marks in the Greek. The punctuation is very different. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the translators are, are right on that instance that this is a quotation of the Corinthians. Paul is quoting the Corinthians. Specifically, Paul is quoting the argument of the stronger brothers. When Paul says, we all have knowledge, he's quoting the argument of the stronger brothers that they were using to contend against the weaker brothers. We know this because he quotes them in verse 1. He says, we all have knowledge. But look at verse 7 of chapter 8. In verse 7, he says that this knowledge is not in every man. So how can he say, we all have knowledge, but then in verse 7 he says, uh, no, we don't. <laughs> well, Paul's not contradicting himself, right? No, what he's, what he's doing is he's quoting the stronger brothers, and then he's making a statement in verse 7 that applies to the whole church. So he's saying, uh, we all have knowledge. It's what the stronger brothers are saying, but in reality, no, we don't all have this knowledge, Paul will go on to argue. The we all, in verse 1, cannot refer to all the church. Because in verse 7, he refers to another we all group. It was this knowledge that the stronger brothers used to justify their partaking of meats sacrificed to idols. Well, what is this knowledge? And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. I'm getting into next week's message. But it's important for us to understand this knowledge. Look at verse 4. This is the knowledge that the stronger brothers had that they were using to justify their partaking of meats sacrificed to idols. They said, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. Because they knew that idols were nothing, non-existent entities, they had liberty to partake of the sacrificed meat. But, but, but wait a minute. D does that imply that the weaker brothers did not know this? And think about that for a moment. We all have the knowledge. We know that the idols are nothing. Therefore, we can partake. Were they then saying that the weaker brothers didn't know that? Well, of course they're not saying that because all Christians know that idols are nothing. It's, it's most, one of the most fundamental and basic truths of Christianity that there is but one God. Therefore, and this is, this is crucial for understanding this chapter, therefore, the source of this contention is not merely factual knowledge. It is knowledge, but it's not merely factual knowledge. Both the stronger brother and the weaker brother possessed the same factual knowledge. The source of the contention was, what are you going to do with that knowledge? And in the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, he sees through the noise, he dies to the heart of the issue, not simply knowledge, but knowledge rightly applied and knowledge in relationship to love. Knowledge in relationship to love. So Paul quotes this conjecture in verse 1. And now at the end of verse 1, I want you to see the caution. The caution. Paul sees right through the noise. He sees that the, the real issue is not merely factual knowledge. He sees that the solution is not just, well, I just need to give them a theological lesson on idolatry and that will solve this contention. He realizes that it's something deeper than that. So he gives this caution in verse 1, and if you don't understand the line of argumentation up until now, this caution doesn't make sense to you. When Paul says, at the end of verse 1, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. See, the stronger brothers in the Corinthian church, this is what was going on. 
The stronger brothers in the Corinthian church were boasting in their knowledge and they were using their knowledge to lord it over their fellow church members. And with their knowledge came an air of superiority. This knowledge, divorced from love, only served to fuel the pride and elitism that was so pervasive in the Corinthian church. We know that pride was a problem for this church. Paul dealt with that earlier. They thought that they were better than others because they thought they knew something that others did not know. And even if you did know it, you don't know it as good as I know it. Because if you knew it as good as I know it, you'd think like me. You'd be like me. That was what the stronger brothers in the Corinthian church were doing. And so Paul says, knowledge like that puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Their problem was not that they had too much knowledge, but that they misused their knowledge. God gives us knowledge of himself and of his word to promote us to a greater love for the things of God and a a greater desire to devote ourselves to Christ. God does not give us knowledge for the purpose of thinking ourselves to be better than or superior to other Christians. It's not why he gives us knowledge. Indeed, the Corinthians possessed the knowledge that idols were nothing. Paul says in chapter 1 that they came behind in no gift. They were not lacking in knowledge. They were a smart church. They possessed the knowledge that idols are nothing, but when they made their knowledge about idols an idol itself, when their knowledge had become an idol, their knowledge, like the other idols, also became nothing. Sometimes, you can be so right, you're wrong. When you make an idol out of your knowledge and elevate what you know over a love for the brethren, over peaceful fellowship, over the unity of the church, then your right knowledge puts you in the wrong. This is what Paul means when he says knowledge puffs up. The Greek word here is is a verb that literally means to blow or fill with air. Listen to me. The church of Jesus Christ has no room for air-headed know-it-alls who worship their own knowledge and have no love and no compassion for the brethren. Now, Paul is not writing against knowledge itself. Obviously, knowledge of the truth is necessary and commanded in the Christian life. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. God never blesses a lie. He only blesses the truth. We need knowledge. Hosea 4, 6, God says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. But I believe he would also say, My people destroy each other when they have a lack of love. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God. 1 Timothy 3.15 The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I'm quoting these scriptures to you because I want you to see Christianity is not an anti-intellectual movement and ignorance is not a fruit of the Spirit. Some will abuse this phrase, this knowledge puffeth up to argue against any form of academic study or doctrinal education. I went to a Bible conference one time. My wife was with me. And there was this preacher who was, he called it preaching. And he was going on and going on. And he was boasting in his ignorance. And when I say that, I mean... He was saying over and over again, now I'm just ignorant. I'm just ignorant. I'm just an old country preacher. I'm just ignorant. I, I don't know very much. I'm just ignorant. That is so far from the realm of what Paul is communicating here. There's no virtue in ignorance. And if you are ignorant and you're admitting you're ignorant and you're saying you're getting up 
and you're holding up the Word of God, and you're saying, I don't really know much about this book, then get out of the pulpit. <laughs> Christianity is not an anti-intellectual message. Ignorance is not a fruit of the Spirit. So that's not what Paul is communicating here. Maybe I'm going too far with this point, but it's just so pervasive in our day and age. And I think that clarification needs to be made. And, and one of the reasons why I feel so passionate about this is because, you know, myself and we have men in this church that are engaged in formal studies. They're engaged, in some in Bible college or seminary. Um, one, you know, we have some folks that know Ron Miller over in Clarksville and the church there. He's on the board of directors of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And those who will abuse this this phrase, knowledge puffeth up, what they're essentially saying is, well, if you're in any kind of formal studies, you're unspiritual. Hmm. That's not what Paul is arguing. He's not arguing against knowledge, but he's arguing against an independent knowledge that does not motivate us to love. Knowledge is not meant to be the final goal of our Christian life. Knowledge tends to only care about the knower. The joy of knowledge terminates in the one who has the knowledge. But we as Christians, we're not called to seek joy within ourselves. We're called to place the interests and welfare of others before ourselves. Knowledge without love, full heads and empty hearts, it is the death blow of the Christian life. Knowledge without love makes one want to win arguments more than win souls. Knowledge without love makes you want to beat one another over the head with the Bible. Knowledge without love makes you want to assert yourself because of all that you have learned. Knowledge without love conforms you into the image of a Pharisee, not into the image of Christ. Knowledge without love will not rest until everyone knows how smart you are and how right you are. Knowledge without love makes you cold and callous and divisive and argumentative instead of tender, loving, considerate, and compassionate. Knowledge without love gives Christianity a fragrance of death. And it robs Christianity of the joy offered in Christ through love. Knowledge without love is not even true knowledge because it fails to produce the very thing for which it is intended. And that is a love for what it knows. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians 8, but skip over to chapter 13. As slow as we're making our way through this book, it'll be several months before we get to chapter 13, and you will have forgotten everything I'm about to say by then. So I'm not in any danger by quoting the first three verses of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and look at what Paul says about knowledge and love. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, have not charity. We'll talk about the definition of the word charity in a, in a minute, but I'm just going to say have not love. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. What is the tongues of angels and the tongues of men? That's an eloquent, knowledgeable, informed, Smart, intellectual voice. And if it doesn't have love, it's no better than cymbals crashing in an orchestra. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, what's that? That's somebody that went to vacation Bible school and graduated with a certificate that they hung on their refrigerator. They know the Bible. That's somebody with a, a college degree. That's somebody with letters behind his name. He understands all mysteries. And all knowledge. That's what it says. Verse 2. Though I have all knowledge and the faith that, that could remove mountains, if I don't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned. We brag about, I've read this book and that book, and I give money to this organization, that organization, and I do this spiritual work and that spiritual work. If you have no love, you're nothing. 
nothing. Turn back to chapter 8. This magnifies the importance of knowledge that does not end in itself, but that leads to a true Christian love. Paul is here talking to stronger brothers that have a lot of knowledge, but are severely wanting in love, mercy, and compassion. Steve Lawson says that fellowshipping with such Christians is like hugging a porcupine. They have a lot of really good points, but they will hurt you with those points. The contrast to a knowledge that puffs up is a charity that edifies. A charity that edifies. Now the word charity is a bit antiquated in our day. When we think of charity, we think of giving money to the poor. We think of uh, donating funds to the needy. But the King James translators use this word, and they use it all throughout the New Testament, to designate the specific love that Christians are to have for one another. Anytime you see the word charity, that's what it's referring to. It's not talking about our love for God or our love for ourselves or our love for the institution of the church or anything like that. It's talking about our love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. The use of the word charity is not inaccurate. In fact, it's very accurate. It's just unfamiliar to our modern vocabularies. So what Paul is saying is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds builds up. We cannot have true love without knowledge. We cannot have true love without knowledge, but we must not have knowledge without true love. When we seek out and obtain true knowledge, and when that knowledge promotes us to love God and love one another, only then have we properly used knowledge for its God-intended purposes. Only then have we avoided the ditches of ignorance and intellectualism. Only then have we avoided the snares of pride and arrogance. Knowledge alone will never edify anyone because knowledge is satisfied in itself. But love edifies because love is satisfied in the joys of another. I don't have to have a relationship with any of you to be satisfied in my knowledge. I can go home pick up a book, obtain some knowledge, and be really happy about it. But in order to delight myself in love, we desperately need one another. Love must have an object that is not the one doing the loving. That's what leads to edification. In all of our learning and in all of our studying, we need to be constantly asking the question... How does this information cause me to love God more and be a greater blessing to my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what we need to be doing. Every time we hear a sermon, every time we read a book, every time uh, some information passes our way, we should be thinking, how can I employ this great knowledge to be a better Christian, to love God more, to serve Him more, to love my wife more, to, to be a better father to my children? Those are the things that God gives us this knowledge for. So Paul continues this caution in verse 2. He says, And if any man think that he knoweth anything. The the emphasis here is on the word think. He thinks he knows something. Paul doesn't say if any man knoweth anything. He says if any man thinks he knows anything. The idea is that this man thinks he has arrived in terms of knowledge. He thinks that he has reached a a level of spirituality and he has arrived to some higher echelon of Christianity because of all the things he knows. Do you ever do that? Honestly, I mean, do do, do you ever find yourself when the Lord reveals a new truth to you, something that you, you might have believed the exact opposite at one point, and He reveals this truth to you, and then you look at your friends that still believe what you used to believe, and how, how easy and how quickly we forget what we used to believe and suddenly look down on those who are still believing it and think that we are just so much better because of this knowledge that we have attained. Paul says, if any man thinks he knoweth anything, if you think you've arrived in terms of knowledge, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. 
Paul says, if you think you've arrived in terms of knowledge, then you've only proven that you don't know anything in the way you should actually know it. Because the right way of knowing things will not lead us to pride, but to humility. The more we truly know about God, the more He will be exalted in our hearts, and the more lowly we will see ourselves. The more we learn, the more we realize that we still have a lot to learn. If your knowledge has not produced a love and a humility in your heart towards God and towards other Christians, then your knowledge is defective and you do not know the things you think you know in the way that you ought to know them. This is the pitfall, by the way, of many young men. It's called the cage stage for a reason. Because you come to this glorious doctrine of the supremacy of God and then you begin to, to think very big thoughts about God and you begin to see Him sovereign over all things and then you begin to see yourself as this totally depraved wretch. What, what should that doctrine do for you? That should humble you to the dust. That should put you on your knees. But oftentimes what does that do for us? In reality, it turns us into an aggressive dog that needs to be put in a cage. We finally see the truth. We see the lies that we once believed. It's so easy to, to be puffed up in pride and to suddenly think that we are better because we have attained a higher level of knowledge. See, it's one thing to know the doctrines of grace. It's another thing to know the grace of the doctrine. In all of our learning about the Lord, as He shows us the vast superiority of Himself, we pray He does show us that. May he more and more reveal to us precious truths of his sovereignty, of his might. As he shows us these things from his word, may that knowledge prompt us to love him more, love each other more, and humble ourselves before him. Humble ourselves before him. If you can, if you can look upon someone else who was believing something you used to believe or living the way you used to live and look down on them, you have not climbed the first rung of God's grace. And we see that and we say, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, I'd, I'd be right there with them. But for the grace of God, there'd be no difference in me in my life and my, my doctrine and my faith and my believing. He who has revealed these things to me. How compassionate that ought to make us. Listen to me. Other Christians who believe differently are not your enemy. They're not your enemy. Even Christians who believe some seriously whacked up, messed up stuff, they're not your enemy. Because guess what? Had God not revealed the truth to you, that's what you'd be believing. Probably something worse. Do you, really, do you really think it honors God when we, when we get on Facebook and we, we write out our epistles of condemnation towards name the camp that we have a disagreement with? When we make memes and pictures and we mock them? We mock them as if we got to where we are because we're just so great? It was God that revealed those truths to us. We, sh we should have pity when, when we see Christians caught up in lies. We should have pity when we see churches in our, in our land, in our town, in West Tennessee, wherever, that, that are not preaching the truth, that are not preaching sound doctrine. But th that's not the enemy. We should, we should, our hearts should break over that. We should pray, Lord, reveal this to them. We don't have the corner market on sound theology. So Paul says... If, if that's how you're using knowledge, you don't know anything the way you ought to know it. That was the problem with these stronger brothers. They had come to this conviction. They were so right in their own mind. They knew what they believed about idolatry. And bless God, they were going to do what they wanted to with it, even if it meant offending and hurting and demoralizing and obliterating the weaker brother. The last thing I want you to see in this text is the culmination. The culmination in verse 3. 
Paul goes on and he says, but if any man love God. Now stop right there. Now why doesn't Paul just say, if any man knows God? Right, so far he's been talking about knowledge, right? Why doesn't he just say, if any man knows God? Because apart from a love for him, factual information and knowledge about him will get you absolutely nowhere. This is where we're at in the Bible Belt, by the way. It's not that people don't know, although it's becoming more and more that people don't know the basic facts of the gospel. By and large, it's not that people don't know the facts of the gospel. It's that they, they know too many facts. And they know some facts that aren't facts. What Paul is saying in accordance with verse 2 is that if you say... Test your heart with this. If you say that you know God, but you don't love God, then you really don't know God in the way you ought to know Him. That's what he's saying. He says, verse 2, If any man thinks he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. And then he says, But if any man love God, if you don't love God, but you claim to know God, you don't know Him the way you think you know Him. Think about this for a moment. Matthew eleven twenty nine, when Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Precious verse. What was he saying to us? Learn of me. What was he saying? Was Jesus telling us to, to go off to the Christian bookstore and pick up a systematic theology and study the doctrine of Christology? Was that I mean was that really I mean you should do that. It's a wonderful study. But was that was that all Jesus wanted us to do? Learn of me? Learn how to pronounce hypostatic union? Is that all he wanted us to do? No, brothers and sisters. He was telling us to learn of him, what he is and what he's done so that we might love him and be like him. Learn of me. Love for God is the chief aim of all doctrinal knowledge. High theology is to produce high doxology. What's so blessed about the way God has designed all of this, all of this whole thing of knowledge and love, is that for your knowledge of God to produce a love for God, and your love for God will then cause you to want to know more about God. It's this blessed cycle of grace. God reveals some truths about himself to you, and you love him. And because you love him, you say, Lord, give me more. Give me more. And then he gives you more. And then you say, Lord, I love you even more. Give me more. And as you grow in your knowledge of God and your love for God, you will grow in a desire to please him and serve him. A right relationship between knowledge and love is the crux of a properly lived Christian life. It is. So he says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. Again, why doesn't Paul just say, if any man love God, the same is loved of God? Because he's trying to connect this idea of knowledge and love in our minds. He wants us to get this. He's showing us the folly of divorcing knowledge from love. Those whom he foreknew are those he foreloved. Because the knowledge of God is intimately connected with the love of God. You cannot separate the knowledge of God and the love of God. And we love him because he first knew and loved us. That's what Paul is, is building upon. This cannot refer to a mere cognitive recognition of our existence. That would have no meaning if it did. The same is known of God. The implication is that for those who don't love God, God doesn't know them. If you don't love God, God doesn't know you. But how could we say that about an omniscient, all-knowing God? He knows everything. There is not anything he doesn't know. There's not anyone he doesn't know. Whether you are lost or whether you are saved, he knows every intricate detail of your life this morning. So then how can Paul say that if you don't love God, you don't know God? Because the knowledge of God here is not just this factual cognition of their existence. Rather, it, it refers to his intimate, personal, loving 
communion with those who love him. Adam knew everything. Adam knew all the animals. Adam knew the, the world that he lived in. Adam knew the, the trees and he knew the, the sky. But the Bible says he knew Eve, his wife. That kind of knowledge is far more intimate. And that kind of knowledge, the knowledge between Adam and his wife, the knowledge between man and his wife, that's the knowledge that, it, that is pictured in the relationship between Christ and his church. Israel only have I known. God knew the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Kenites and the Hivites and the Hittites. He knew all of those nations. But he says, Israel only have I known. Israel only have I loved with an intimate, specific, purposeful, sovereign love. If any man loves God, if you love God, do you know why you love God? Because he knew you. Because he knew you. The knowledge of God must refer to this intimate love. Here's what Paul is saying to you. Let's apply this practically. If you want to live a more spiritual life, if you want a deeper relationship with God, then you don't just need to grow in theological knowledge. You need to grow in your love for God. Your spiritual battles are not because you haven't read enough systematic theology. Go home. Give it a shot. Read Calvin's Institutes. Read the works of John Owen. Read Charles Spurgeon. And just, just read it and just dryly get that knowledge and get all the doctrine. See if that helps you any. Not if it's not connected with your love for Him. Your struggle with sin is not because you haven't quite comprehended the doctrine of superlapsarianism. Your great need is not more knowledge, but more love. You're spending all your time looking for the latest book or the latest sermon that will teach you something you haven't yet learned that you think maybe will help you be a better Christian. But what you need to do is meditate upon the things that you already do know about God and get that knowledge in your head to filter down into your heart. And when the knowledge in your head becomes the affections of your heart, then there will be produced within you an overflowing, joyous love for God. And you pray to Him, you say, Lord, help me to love you more. And He will answer that prayer, not by zapping you from heaven with a mushy-gushy, mystical, lovey feeling, but He will answer that prayer by impressing upon your mind glorious truths about who he is and what he has done and if you truly belong to Christ and if the Holy Spirit truly indwells you then it is impossible for you to meditate upon the character of God his, his holiness and his purity and his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy and his justice and his wrath and it is impossible for you to meditate upon the works of God sending his son to redeem you on the cross and not grow in your love for him For some of you, your heart needs to catch up to your head. That, that, that's the reason why you've been having this dry, empty communion. Because you've got this head that's full of all of these wonderful things about God, but you're not allowing it to seep down to your heart. You're learning, you're reading, you're grasping doctrine, yet practically you're growing colder and colder because you're not using that knowledge for the purpose that God intended it to grow in your love for him. Why might that be? Well, a number of reasons. There's a blockage somewhere. There's a blockage between that knowledge and, and that love. And, and what blocks up that artery of knowledge and love? Sin blocks up that knowledge, uh, that artery of knowledge and love. Unconfessed sin that you regard in your heart, that you harbor in your heart. You get a blockage in your in your brain that does not flow down to your affections. And God is calling you here today. Christ is saying to you here today, uh, He's not expecting you to, to go out and, and, and fill your brain with even more knowledge. No, He simply wants you to come to an end of yourself, to repent of your sin, uh, to come unto Him, and to say, Lord, I still have so much to learn, but by Your grace, You have taught me some things about Yourself. And as I consider who You are, 
and all that you have done, my heart is overflowing with a love for you. If you find yourself here today in a place of spiritual apathy and indifference, ask yourself, when's the last time you simply told God you loved him? Because according to verse 3, it's not the most learned theologian who has the most intimate communion with God, but it's the weakest, most feeble Christian who loves him. Who loves him. As I close this morning, I want to speak a word to the unconverted. I know this message primarily speaks to those who know the Lord, who are stronger brothers and weaker brothers, but I don't want to assume that everyone in in here this morning knows the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that they ought to know Him. We do live in the South, in the Bible Belt, churches on every corner. It's likely that everyone here knows the facts of the gospel, the facts of the gospel. You know that God created the world. You know that He put Adam in the garden. You know that man, by his sin, plunged himself into condemnation. You know that that God, because He so loved the world, He gave His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a perfect and sinless life, went to Calvary's cross, died on the cross, shed His blood on the cross, You've heard that story, some of you, from from the time you were able to understand the English language, you've heard that story. You know that Jesus rose on the third day after He accomplished the redemptive plan of God. Yet despite knowing all of these things, you are still lost in your sins. That is because you know the facts about the gospel, but you do not know the Christ of the gospel. You know things about God, but you do not love God. I want you to understand no amount of education will ever save you. No amount of church attendance will ever save you. No amount of reading will ever save you. No amount of baptism and prayer, none of that will ever save you. The only hope that you have for the desperate condition of your soul is that you might, by God's grace, not only come to know these facts about the Lord Jesus Christ, but that you might come to see Him as altogether glorious and holy and lovely. It is not just enough for you to believe that Jesus died on the cross. You must believe that He died for you on the cross. You must be able to look to Calvary and say, that is my Savior dying for me. That is my God shedding His blood for me. The Bible says that it was because of His great love that God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners. And all those who repent of their sins and come to Christ through faith not only learn the facts about Him, but they enter into His love. They love Him, and He loves them. So I ask you this morning, not do you know Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? But I ask you this morning, do you love Him? Do you love Him? Is He altogether lovely in your heart this morning? See the apple of your affections. Can you say, I want nothing more than Him? And if I have Him, I have everything. And I can forsake the whole world and I can say with Paul for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I count all things dumb. I count it all loss for the excellency of attaining Christ Jesus my Lord. And if you don't, why on earth not? What so allures you about this world? What riches does it have to offer you? What glory does it have to give you that you would take what this world has over the darling Son of God? This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in word only. Not in word only, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit. Father, I pray this morning. Father, I pray that you would manifest yourself in our hearts. That you, by your Spirit, would create in us a love for you. A love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would work upon our hearts. Those of us who know you, we have a love for you. But oh, how that love grows cold. 
Oh, how that love is, is often is often just fleeting and, and flickering. Lord, it, it reignite it this morning. Re-impassion us for you. Allow us to pursue you in all of your glory and in all of your splendor. Not by some charismatic, emotional, nonsensical passion, but, but use the facts, the truth of who you are. Teach us from your word. May we see something about you that we haven't yet seen in the scriptures something that we've overlooked, something that we haven't yet considered. And may you use that knowledge of who you are to put within us a deep love for you. Deep love for you. And when we have that deep love for you, Lord, we trust that you will work that love out practically. We'll love our neighbor. We'll love one another. We'll love the church. We'll, we'll live lives that please you and that serve you. Do this by your grace. Do this for your glory. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.